0: Good evening, it's Sunday, January 12th, 2020. This is, I don't even know what show it is. This is show number 113, here we go. good evening good evening welcome welcome back to the show this is the 113th show uh, oh man wow it's uh it's one of those things just give me a second here to all right how's it going? Welcome to winter, right? Uh, it is, <laughs> it is definitely underway. It's, um, as I said, it's Sunday, January the 12th, 2020. 20. Going on, uh, you know, a new decade. And uh, a lot of exciting things are happening. Man, it's still got a lot of adjustments. A lot of adjustments we've got going on. <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, usually this time of the year, I'm complaining about the weather. Uh, unfortunately, there, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, right? Uh, but there are no complaints. Not one complaint. Actually, uh, yesterday the the weather was. Um, I think it was 84 degrees and sunny. It was a little bit cloudy. And uh, today was basically wash, rinse, and repeat. Uh, Sparing no time to get out there in the bright sunshine and the warm weather, it was just wonderful. Uh, The leg is getting better. Um, I'm able to walk. And... um, (laughs) You know, uh, it's the it's the constant struggle um, of uh, you know, new adjustments, new surroundings. I suppose, and um, it's it's been fantastic. The um, just, just it's just been fantastic. And I know, uh, as I'm speaking, actually, there are uh, there is a storm stretching from. Uh, the southern states all the way to the northeast to the new england states and it's uh left a lot of people um maimed uh injured and homeless and so um hopefully there will be no more issues with that but uh there's snow on the ground everywhere uh in the midwestern states uh and uh you know it's the same humdrum right uh on, on the regular news media cycles Uh, got an opportunity this uh, this past week. Met met some of uh, my uh, new colleagues that uh, I'll be working with. Um, very talented group of people, and I'm uh, very excited in that capacity. And uh, shout outs, shout outs, uh, definitely, indeed. Um, and that, those, you know, lots lots of smiles, definitely coming from my direction. How about you? How is your winter going? Is it, hopefully you're not stuck in one of those miserable places. But if you are, hey, I know where you're coming from. Definitely, definitely, definitely know the feeling. <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, uh, that hasn't been the only thing, right? Uh, you know, I've been... D- <laughs> So here's the thing, right? Um, I've I've had a website. Uh, it's just been um, one of those web domains that you own and you really don't do anything with. But um, <laughs> it's it just got you know it just gets out of it's one of those things, right? And so I had um I had an email account with them. It was a basic email account, right? It's where all your crap goes. Uh and so I logged into my email um Saturday and uh the the customer service rep now I'm not going to name the company but uh the customer service representative told me that uh they are no longer uh offering email services with uh any hosting plans and um I was warned in advance that they would be terminating the free service. Uh I and I was not warned. Uh and I was not uh notified in advance. There were no in particular notices. So I phoned them and I asked uh quite pointedly, uh why is my why is my email terminated and I would like to get my data back. And so uh she advised me that well Uh, You know, uh, your data is safe, but you will need to pay $59.95 to um, access that data. So I asked again, I said, well, um, I don't think that's kind of fair, given the fact that this email account has been in use since the mid-2000s. And I have data in this email account since then. And uh, some, some of the data was unfortunately it was irretrievable, right? There were conversations with uh, my brother who passed away uh, and um, conversations and notes uh, to that effect that, you know, uh, you know, although they were backed up, uh, it was just the fact that, uh, you know, they were still there, right? And one of those sentimental things. And so, uh, (laughs) so basically, yeah, uh, my data, I I would not be able to obtain my access to any of my data that I would uh, paid for uh, and um, I would have to pay an additional fee. So I said nope, nope, not going to happen. Uh, I will just uh, delete my uh, account and uh, delete the tar you know, delete the tarball out of the web web hosting file and uh, re uh, point my MX records somewhere else. And uh, so that's what I did and uh, it was a uh, sayonara because You know, you just don't have to be held hostage like that. And that was my fault for um, just being lazy in that capacity. And so, yeah, uh, knock, knock, right? Lesson learned. And it's no surprise. And again, I'm not here to bash any companies in that capacity because I understand that uh, a lot of companies have business models uh, to to practice and to follow. But I I certainly voiced my displeasure to the representative who was uh, unfortunate enough to uh, heed my wrath. And, of course, I conveyed it in uh, a a very intellectual capacity. Uh, But uh, it's, you know... That's no way to do business, and so uh i'll i'll you know uh you know and uh, and, uh <sighs> i don't know i don't know uh, i had an opportunity also this uh this past Saturday to meet uh with uh some old friends of mine as well here uh and catch up on some of those uh, old uh <laughs> those old streams uh, and uh, it was kind of fun we we went over to uh all points located <laughs> i took back uh, so we have uh, uh, and I, I i don't know uh, uh, maybe i'll introduce a, a few of these guys uh, later down the line but uh growing up here uh <laughs> we had a game and we would uh claim tv towers right and um so, growing up on the south side uh, of Jacksonville, we uh, there's uh, a road called Hogan Road, and there are, or used to be, I'm not sure, uh, old you know, television stations and radio stations on Hogan Road, and um, so we all claimed, laid claim to each of the towers. Uh, what, yeah, and you know, uh, what we and. As far as that's concerned, that's all you, I'm going to convey, you know. So, each one of those towers were essentially ours. And um, and so, yeah, I was reintroduced to my tower. And so, I've tweeted a time or two on my uh, Twitter account back in the past when there was a, a, a disaster happening uh, back in the Hurricane Irma days. <laughs> it's something so it's just silly right but it's one of those one of those things that i still find kind of cool uh yeah i haven't had the opportunity to um do too much of anything else uh still taking care you know still nursing the leg here it's still still you know hurts but uh i don't know a lot a lot and again uh you know it's the new year right so if you have um if you have any certain um new year's resolutions one of those should be to make sure that uh you are doing everything you can to protect your infrastructure your servers your networks stuff to that effect and it's the small things right that will allow the bad people in it's the small things that people miss you know, so pay attention to details. Sometimes the details matter. Uh, and one of those details not to be overlooked would be uh, something that I've t- spoken about uh, on a few other uh, uh, on a few other shows in the past. Uh, most specifically about quantum computing. Uh, if you're not familiar with quantum computing, um, and you you are just and you are new to the show. Uh, Quantum computing is the study of a non-classical mode of uh, computation, whereas a classical computer encodes data into fundamental units called bits, where each bit represents either a 1 or a 0, whereas a quantum computer encodes data into bits that can represent a 1 or a 0, or some combination of the two. The combination is known as quantum superposition, and bits with these quantum properties are known as qubits. In a contrast to classical computers, which they perform computations that they never deviate from cleverly or clearly defined values. Uh, Quantum computing, of course, began in the early 1980s when physicist Paul Binoff proposed a quantum mechanical model of the Turing machine. Richard Feynman and Yuri Manin later suggested that a quantum computer could perform simulations that are out of reach for regular computers. In 1994, Peter Shor developed a polynomial time quantum algorithm for factoring integrals. This was a major breakthrough in the subject, an important method of asymmetric key exchange known popularly nowadays as RSA. Uh, and there are different variances, of course. The existence of polynomial time quantum algorithm proves that one of the most widely used cryptographic protocols is vulnerable to an adversary who possesses a quantum computer. So, you know, that, that leads me to, um, you know, discuss uh, that particular topic, right? Where are we with co- quantum computers? And. Um, I, I think we need an update. We need to know what is actually going on with quantum computers. And so recently uh, at the uh, Chaos Congress uh, that was um, in, well, just, you know, I think I've spoken about it before, but uh, you can, um, you can, <laughs> whatever. Anyhow, uh, listen, there, I wanted to uh, uh, run a brief introduction to quantum computing and the review progress Uh, And basically, um, we need to find out where we are in um, quantum computing, right? Where are we? And so um, let's find out, right? So with uh, any further ado, it's Andreas Dewis with where are we with quantum computing and are we there yet?
1: talk by Andreas, who gave a talk exactly five years ago, and it's almost exactly five years ago, it's like one year and two or three hours, Um, and he gave a talk at 31C3 about quantum computing titled Let's Build a Quantum Computer, and I think back then we basically had just found out that Google was planning to partner with the University of California and Santa Barbara to try to build a quantum computer. Of course, now we're five years later. We've had a lot of developments, I think, in the field. We've had some big announcements by Google and other groups. And Andreas has now come back to give us an update. So please welcome him to the stage.
2: OK. Um, hi, everyone. So I'm very happy to be here again after five years of uh, giving the first version of this talk. Um, My motivation for giving this talk is quite simple. I was often so I did my PhD on um, experimental quantum computing um, from 2009 to 2012. Um, I left that field afterwards to work in industry, um, but always people would come to me and would ask, uh, "Hey, Andreas, did you see like uh, this new uh, experiment there? Did you see you can like use quantum computers on Amazon's cloud now? Did you see like Google has this new quantum thing? Um, Is this really working? Uh, Can we use quantum computers yet? Why are you not working on this?" And um, I couldn't. I couldn't really um, answer the question, um, so that's what I said, okay, um, I want to go back to this and find out uh, what happened in the last five years since I finished my PhD, what kind of progress was made in the field, and do we actually have quantum computers today that are working already or are we not yet quite just there? So. We want to do it like this, uh, I want to first give you a short introduction to quantum computing, um, so just that we have a common understanding of how that works and why it's interesting. Um, then I will show you a small example of uh, experimental quantum speedup, uh, notably the work I did with my colleagues in Seclay um, during my PhD thesis. Then we will discuss some of the challenges and problems, why we were not able to build a real quantum computer back then, and I will discuss some approaches that have come up since then that uh, would basically allow us to do that eventually, and then. We will, of course, discuss um, Google's recent uh, experiment uh, in um, collaboration with the University of Santa Barbara where they showed basically a very impressive quantum computing uh, system with 53 qubits. We will look exactly, try to understand what they did there and um, see if that's really like a quantum computer in the, um, in the real sense already or if there's still something missing. And in the end, of course, I will try to give you another small outlook to see um, what we can expect in the coming years. So in order to talk about quantum computing, we need to first talk about uh, classical computing just a little bit. Uh, you might know that classical computers, they work with bits, so zeros and ones. Uh, um, they store them in so-called registers. Um, this here, for example, is an example of like a bit register. Um, of course, the bits themselves they are not very interesting, um, but we have to do stuff with them uh, so we can um, compute functions over those bit registers. Um, that's what like, a modern CPU is doing um, in a simplified way, of course. So we take some input bit register values, uh, we compute some function over them, and then we get an output value. So a very simple um, example would be a search problem. Um, I will discuss this because later we will also see in the experiment how we can use a quantum computer to solve this. So, I just want to motivate why this kind of problem can be interesting. And um, it's a very silly search function, so it um, takes two bits as inputs um, and it returns one bit as an output, indicating whether the input bits are the solution to our search problem or not. Um, and you could imagine that we have a very, very complicated function here. So, for example, a function that calculates the answer to Life, the universe, and everything. Um, well, not a complete answer, but only the first two bits. So, really complicated to um, implement and uh, very costly to execute. So, we might think that it might take like millions of years to run this function once on our inputs. Um, so, we want to find the right solution to that function with as few function calls as possible, of course. Overall, there are four possibilities, so four input states 00, 0, 0 01, 10 1, 0, and 11 1, 1, that we can apply our function to. And only for one of these states, the 0, 01 state, because the answer is 42, so that's uh, 0 times 1 plus 2 pi and 2 plus uh, some other stuff, so the first two bits are 0, 01. Um, for this f- value, it, the function returns a 1. For all of the other values, the function returns a 0. Now let's think about how we can. I implement a simple search function, and in principle, if we don't know anything about the function, so we can imagine it's so complicated that we can't do any optimizations, we don't know where to look, um, so we have to really try um, each of these values in sequence um, and for this, we can have a simple algorithm, so we can start um, initializing our, our bit register uh, with a zero zero value, then we can call the function on that uh, register we can see. What the result is. In this case, the result would be zero. If the result would be one, then we know, okay, we have found our solution, so we can stop our algorithm. But in this case, the result is zero, so we can just go back to the left value and to the left uh, step and increase the register value to go to zero, one, and try again. And in the worst case, um, depending if you're optimistic or not, we have to do this three or four times. Um, So if you want to really be sure that we find the right answers, we have to do it four times in the worst case. And this is so to say, the time complexity or the computational complexity of this search. You know if you imagine that in our algorithm, the most expensive operation is really calling this function f, then um, the calling time or the complexity of calling this function will be what dominates the com- complexity of our algorithm and in this case, the complexity is very similar, simple here, um, because it's linear in the number of uh, the search space. So if you have n states, for example, in our examples we have four different input space, uh, states, um, we also need to evaluate the function four times. So, and please keep this graph in mind, because we're going to revisit that later a bit to see if we can do better with a different paradigm of computing. And so, classically, this is really the best we can do for the search problem here, because we don't know anything else about the function that would allow us to optimize that further. But now the interesting thing is that uh, we might imagine that we don't use classical computing for solving our problem, and, in fact, uh, the discipline that we call quantum computing was um, kind of like inspired by a lecturer or like a seminar of uh, Richard Feynman, who um, thought about how um, it would be possible to simulate, and or if it would be possible to simulate cl- uh, quantum systems on a classical computer, a Turing machine, if you want. And he found that, um, because quantum mechanics is so complicated for classical computers that it's not possible to do that efficiently, but that if you would use the laws of quantum mechanics uh, themselves to make a computer like a quantum computer, then it would be possible to simulate these quantum systems. And this kind of like sparked this whole idea of using quantum mechanics to do computation, and in the following years, they were not only. Um, s- solutions found for simulating quantum systems which such a quantum computer but also for solving other not related problems to quantum computing so like search problems or factorization problems for example and quantum computers can do um, can um, do computation faster than classical computers because they have several um, differences in how they work um, so one of the key differences here um, um, is superposition which means that uh, if you use a quantum computer um, instead of a classical computer, we cannot only load a single register value into our um, bit register. So, for example, the first value there with only zeros, but instead we can kind of load all of the possible state values um, at, at once, so in parallel. Um, and this is so-called quantum state or quantum superposition state, um, where each of these values here um, has an amplitude, which is shown on the left. That is basically a complex number that relates them to the other qubit uh, the other states. And, oops. Uh, if you have, like, for example, n qubits, then the total number of qubit states can be very large, uh, 2 to, par- to the power of n. So you can imagine that uh, if you have a large qubit um, quantum, quantum bit register, then your number of quantum states can be really, really large, and this can be very powerful for computation. So um, in the rest of the talk, we're gonna just indicate this by like uh, showing the register as like a um, small uh, rectangle to indicate that it's not only a single value in there, but that we have a superposition values of all the possible input values to our function, for example and there's a condition a so called normalization condition that puts some constraints on these amplitudes because the sum of the squares of the absolute values of these amplitudes needs to sum to 1 which basically means that the entire the probability of each of these of all of these states together needs to be 100% so and this is uh, the first ingredient uh, that makes quantum computers uh, interesting for computation because um, we can basically implement any classical function that we can also run on a classical computer on a quantum computer. Um, the difference is that we cannot only run it uh, for one value at a time, but we can, call it, can run it then on a superposition of all possible input values. So if you want, you have like this massive parallelization where you run your computation on all possible inputs at once and also calculate then all of the possible output values. And that sounds, of course, very cool and very useful. There is a catch that we will discuss later, so um, it is not as easy as that, but this is one step um, of the the power that uh, makes quantum computing interesting. The next thing that is different is that we can, on a quantum computer, not only run um, classical gates or classical functions, but we can also run so-called quantum gates. the quantum gates—they um, are different uh, in respect to the classical functions because they cannot only, like classical operations like AND or OR, um, act on like two qubits in a predictable way, but they can, kind of like. Um, act on the whole um, qubit state at once and also create so-called entangled states, uh, which are really weird uh, quantum states where we can't really separate the state of one qubit from the state of other qubits, so it's kind of like if we want to try to make a small change to one of the qubits in our system, we're also changing other qubits there. So we can never like separate um, the bits, the qubits out like we we can with a classical computer. And this is another resource that we can use um, in quantum computing to um, solve uh, certain problems faster than we could with a classical computer. Now the catch, as I said, is um, that we, of course, do do not we do not want to only make uh, um, computation with our qubits, um, with our qubit register, but we also want to read out the result of our computation. And if we try that so we make like a computation and when we want to measure the state of our quantum register uh, we have a small problem because um, well the measurement process is actually quite complicated but uh, in a very simplified way you can just imagine that God is trying some dice here, and then uh, if we have a quantum vector, a quantum state vector that has like these amplitudes on the left, so a1 to an, then we will um, pick. Uh, he or she will pick a state randomly from um, the possible states, and the probability of getting a given state as a result is proportional, as I said before, to the square of the absolute value of the amplitude. So that means uh, we can perform computation on all of the possible input states of our function, but when we read out the result. We will only get one of the possible results. So, and this kind of like destroys um, at the first glimpse the utility of quantum computing because we can do like computation um, on all states in parallel, but we cannot read out the result. So, not a very interesting computer because we can't learn um, about the output, so to say, or not easily at least. But it turns out that um, there's actually a way of. uh, still um, using quantum computing to uh, be faster than a classical computer. And the first kind of practical algorithm for um, a search problem, um, notably the search problem that we discussed before, was given by Love Grover, who was a researcher at the the Bell um, Labs and who found the the Grover algorithm that's named after him. That's basically a search algorithm which can... uh, can, as we will see, um, solve the search problem that we have in a much more efficient way than any classical computer could. And In my opinion, it is still one of the most beautiful um, quantum algorithms because it is very simple um, and it is very powerful and there is also proof, unlike for other algorithms like the factorization algorithms uh, from Shor, um, that the Grover algorithm can be, will be faster always than uh, any classical, compu- classical algorithm. So um, in my opinion, it is a very nice uh, example of really a quantum algorithm that is um, more powerful than a classical one. Let's see how it works. So there are three steps again in the algorithm. Um, First we initialize our um, qubit uh, register, our state vector, to a superposition of the four possible um, output values, so 00, 01, 10, and 10 again, um, all with equal probability in this case here, or amplitude. Then, we evaluate the uh, function on this input state here, and what the function then does, so we made some special encoding here that basically marks the solution of our problem uh, by changing the sign of the amplitude of the corresponding state. So We can see that in the output state here, um, the 0, 1 state has a sign which is negative, um, which means that it's the solution of the problem that we search. Still, uh, if we would do the readout now directly, we wouldn't be able to uh, learn anything about the solution because, um, as you can see, the amplitude um, is still equal for all of the four states. So, if we would make a readout now, we would only get like one of the four uh, possible states uh, at random. So, we wouldn't learn anything with 100% uh, probability about the solution of our problem. In order to do that, we need to apply another step, the so-called Grover or Diffusion diffusion Operator, um, which now takes this uh, phase difference, or the sign difference, between these individual quantum states and applies a quantum operator to that, that basically transfers the amplitude from all of the states that are not a solution to our problem to the state that is the solution. And for um, this case with uh, two qubits here and with four possible values, there's only one step we need. And after executing that, you can see that now the amplitude of our solution state is 1, uh, versus ver- um, uh, but the amplitude of the other states is all 0. So that's great, because now we can just uh, do a qubit measurement and then we will, with 100% uh, um, probability, uh, find a solution to our search problem. And that's where kind of like the magic uh, of quantum mechanics shows because you can um, evaluate this function only once. So remember that in the first step we only called this uh, function once with all of the values in parallel. So from the computational complexity we are much um, lower than here the classical algorithm. But still we are able with 100% precision in this case to see which state is the solution to our search problem. So, and that's. Um, working not only for the case of two qubits, but um, also with larger qubit registers. So, for example, if you would take 10 qubits, you would um, need to execute a few more of these uh, steps two and three. Um, so, instead of one iteration, you would um, need 25 iterations, for example, here, uh, which is still much better than the 1024 iterations that you would need if you would really look into every possible solution of the function in a classical algorithm. So, um, the speed up here is. Um, Um, very good for, um, so to say, all of the, like, uh, it's quadratical for um, the solution space, and if we look at the uh, complexity plot again, uh, we can now compare our classical algorithm with the uh, the quantum algorithm, um, the Grover search, and as you can see, um, the time complexity or the number of L evaluations of f that we need um, is only square root of uh, n where n is the size of the search space, which uh, shows that um, that we have really a speed advantage here of the quantum computer versus the classical computer and nice thing is the larger our search space becomes, the more dramatic our uh, speed up will be because for example, for um, a search space with um, 1 million elements, we will only have to evaluate the search function 1,000 times instead of 1 million times. So that's quite, um, so to say, um, a speed-up in that sense. Now how can we build a system that realizes this quantum algorithm? Um, here, I show um, the quantum processor that uh, I built with my colleagues at Ciclay, um during my PhD. Um, so, if you want more information about this, uh, you should check out my last talk. Um, I just want to go briefly over the different aspects here. So, um, we use the so called superconducting uh, qubits, Transmon qubits, uh, for realizing our uh, quantum computer, uh, quantum processor. You can see the chip um, here on the top, uh, it's about one centimeter um, across. You can see the two qubits in the middle. Um, the other, like snake like structures, are coplanar waveguides uh, where we can manipulate the qubits using microwaves. And so we use frequencies that are similar to the ones that are used by mobile phones um, to manipulate and read out our qubits. And if you look in the middle, you can see the red uh, area which contains the qubit, each qubit itself. And then there's another zoom in here, which contains the actual qubit structure, which is just some um, two layers of aluminium that have been placed on top of each other, and which create, when they're cooled to a very low temperature, um, a so-called superconducting state, where we can use the superconducting phase between these two uh, layers um, to indicate to um, um, to realize our qubits. There's also a coupler in the middle, so this green element that you see, which um, allows us to uh, run quantum gates operations between the two qubits. To um, use that in practice, we need to put this in a dilution cryostat, which is really like just a very fancy refrigerator, you could say. Um, you cool it down to about 10 millikay, um so very low um, temperature, just above the absolute zero um, temperature. Um, you can see the sample holder here on the left side with the chip mounted to it. Um, so this whole thing is put in the dilution fridge, then it's um, cooled down to the temperature, and then we can, as I said, manipulate it by using these microwave transmission lines. And what we did is we implemented the Grover search for the two qubits. Um, so we um, ran this algorithm um, that I discussed before. I don't want to go too, too much into the details. Um, the results uh, are obtained by running this algorithm many times. And as you can see, we um, have achieved not a 100% success probability, but over 50% for the most cases, which is like, uh, yeah, not perfect of course, but it's good enough to, in our case, show that there was really a quantum speedup possible. And if you ask why, okay, um, why is not 100% probability possible, or why can't we build larger systems with that, or what kept us from, for example, building a 100 or 1,000 qubit quantum processor? Uh, well, there are several things. Um, there's, uh, of course, that we have like, uh, maybe make errors when we ma- manipulate the qubits. So uh, the microwave signals are not perfect, for example. So we introduce small errors when, like, making two qubit and single qubit interactions. Um, we also have, need a really high degree of connectivity if we want to build a large-scale quantum computer. So if every qubit is connected to every other qubit, for example, that would make one million connections for 1,000-qubit co- processor, which a processor, which is just on the engineering side, very hard to realize. And then also our qubits um, have errors um, because they can the environment that the qubits are in, like the chip and uh, Um, The vicinity there also uh, introduces noise that will destroy our quantum state and that limits how many operations we can perform on a single qubit. So there's a possible solution, which is um, the um, surface code architecture, which was introduced in um, 2009 already, actually, um, by David DiVincenzo from the Ulish Research Center, and the idea here is that we do not have a quantum processor with full connectivity, so we do not connect every qubit to every other qubit, instead we only connect the qubit to its four neighbors uh, via so-called tunable coupler. And this is, of course, much easier because you don't need so many connections on the chip. But it turns out that you can still run most of the quantum algorithms that you could also run with a fully connected processor. You just have to pay like a penalty for uh, the limited connectivity. And the nice thing is also that you can. Um, encode um, a single logical qubit, um, so a qubit that we want to do calculations with, as, for example, five um, physical qubits. Um, so all of these qubits here um, that are on the chip would together form one logical qubit, uh, which would then allow us to do error correction. So we can, if there happens some error with one of the qubits, for example, a relaxation or a dephasing error, then we can use the other qubits that we prepared in exactly the same same way to correct this error and continue doing the calculation. And this is quite important because um, in these superconducting qubit systems, there are always errors present. Errors present, and we will not probably be able to eliminate all of them. So we need to find a way to um, correct the errors while we perform the computation. Now, the Google uh, processor um, follows the surface code approach. Um, here I show uh, an image from the Nature article, uh, which was released, um, I think, uh, one month ago. Um, so it's a very impressive system. I find uh, it contains 53 superconducting qubits, um, 86 uh, couplers, uh, tunable couplers between those qubits, and they achieve a fidelity. So the Um, success probability, if you like, uh, for performing one and two qubit gates, uh, which is higher than 99%. Um, So, this is already pretty, very, very good, and almost uh, um, enough um, fidelity to realize uh, quantum error correction, as I uh, discussed before. And with the system, you can really run quite complex uh, quantum algorithms, much more complex than the ones that we run uh, in 2012. Um, so, in the paper, for example, they run sequences with 10 to 20 individual quantum operations or quantum gates. And just to give you an impression of the um, cryostatic, uh, cryogenic engineering and uh, microwave engineering here, um, this is, so to say, um, the um, the illusion cryostat where the um, qubit chip is mounted, uh, and you can see that it's uh, quite a bit more complex than the system we had in 2012. So it really looks uh, way more like a professional quantum computer, I would say. And if you ask a physicist now, uh, why would you build such a system? Um, the answer would be, of course, well, um, it's awesome, so why not? But it turns out that uh, if an organization like Google gives like 100 or 200 million US dollars for uh, realizing such research, they also want to see some results. Um, So that's why the team, of course, uh, under John Martinez tried to um, use this quantum processor for something um, that shows um, how powerful or that, so to say, it can uh, outperform a classical computer. And. this sounds easy, but actually, it's not um, so not so easy to find a problem that is both doable on this quantum computer, which has like 50 qubits and uh, a bit more than 50 qubits and like 80 couplers, um, but is not possible to simulate on a classical computer. Um, so we could think, for example, about um, the factoring of um, numbers into prime components, which is of course always like the motivation of certain agencies to push for quantum computing, because that would allow them to read everyone's email, Um, but unfortunately, both the number of qubits that you would require for this and the number of operations is uh, much too high um, to be able to realize something like this on this processor. Um, The next thing uh, which would be very interesting is uh, the simulation of quantum systems. So if you have like molecules or other quantum systems that have many degrees of freedom, um, it's very difficult to simulate those on classical computers. Um, On a quantum computer you could do it efficiently. But again, um, since the Google team did not do this, I assume um, the quantum computer uh, was just, or they didn't have like a feasible problem where they could actually perform such a simulation um, that would not be, not be performable or like calculable on a classical computer. So, but in the near term, uh, in the future, this might actually be a very relevant application of such a processor. Um, the last uh, possibility would be to run, um, for example, the search algorithm that we discussed before. But again, uh, for the number of qubits that are in the system and uh, the size of the search space, um, it's still not possible because the algorithm requires too many steps, and the limited coherence times of the qubits in this processor make it impossible to, lo- to run this uh, kind of like algorithm. There, at least to my knowledge. So, what? What they did then uh, was therefore to um, perform a different kind of experiment, one that was doable with the processor, which is um, so-called randomized uh, um, benchmarking, and in this case, what you do is that you, instead of like running uh, an algorithm that does something actually useful like a search um, algorithm, you run just a random sequence of gates. So you have, for example, your 53 qubits, and then you run first like some single qubit gates, so you change the qubit values individually, then you run two qubit gates between um, random qubits to create like a superposition and an entangled state, and in the end you just read out the resulting qubit state from your register. And this is also very um, complex operation, so you really need a very high degree of uh, um, like control of your quantum processor, which um, the Martinez, uh, the Google team was able to achieve here. Um, it's not; it's just not solving uh, a really practical problem yet, so to say. But um, on the other hand, it's uh, the, it's a, um, it's a system or it's an algorithm that can be run on the quantum computer easily, but which is, as we will see, very difficult to simulate or reproduce on a classical system. And the reason that it's so difficult to reproduce on a classical system is that if we want to simulate the action of these quantum gates that we run on a quantum computer uh, using a classical machine, a classical computer, then uh, for every qubit that we add, um, roughly the size of our problem space quadruples. So you can imagine if you have like two qubits, then it's very easy to simulate that. You can do it on like uh, your iPhone or like your uh, computer, for example. Um, if you add more and more qubits, though, you can see that the problem size becomes really uh, really big, really fast. Uh, So if you have, like, 20 qubits, 30 qubits, for example, you cannot do it on a personal computer anymore. You will need, like, um, a supercomputer, and then if you keep increasing the number of qubits, then at some point, in this case, 50 qubits or 53 qubits, it will be impossible even for the fastest supercomputers that we have right now. And that's what um, is called the so-called quantum supremacy regime here for this randomized gate sequences, um, which is basically just uh, um, the area here on the curve that you see um, that is still doable for this quantum processor that Google realized but is not um, simulatable or verifiable by any classical computer even like a supercomputer in a reasonable amount of time and if um, we can run something in this regime here, it proves that we have a quantum system that is uh, able to do computation which is not uh, classically re- uh, reproducible. So it is something that really can only be done on a quantum computer. And that is why running this kind of experiment is, uh, is interesting, because it really shows us that quantum computers can do things that classical computers cannot do, even if they are for the moment not really useful. <laughs> And the gate sequence that they run looks um, something like this. So we can see again, like uh, here, five, uh, four of the um, qubits that the, the Google team has, and uh, they run sequences uh, of operations of different lengths, then perform a measurement, and then just sample the output of their measurements. So what they get as a result is a sequence of long bit strings, so zeros and ones, uh, uh, for each experiment they run, and to uh, reproduce the. Uh, To check that the quantum computer is actually doing the right thing, um, you have to compare it to um, the results of a classical simulation of this um, algorithm. And that's, of course, a problem now because. you, we just uh, said that we realized a quantum computer, a quantum processor, which is able to do this computation uh, on 53 qubits, and that no classical computer can verify that. So, the question is now how can um, they prove or show that what the quantum computer calculates is actually uh, the correct answer, or that he does not just produce some garbage values? And that's a very interesting question, actually. And the way they did it here is by extrapolation. So um, instead of, for example, um, solving the full circuit, um, so that contains all of the connections and all of the gates of the full algorithm, they um, created uh, simplified circuits in two different ways. Um, so, for example, they cut they cut some of the connections between the qubits in the algorithm, so that the problem space would become a bit smaller. Or, in the other case with the elided circuit, um, they just changed the operations in order to allow for some shortcuts in the classical computation or classical simulation of the algorithm. So, in both cases, they were able to then verify the result of their quantum computation with this classical simulation performed on a supercomputer. And then they basically just did this for um, a larger Larger number of qubits, um, they um, plotted the resulting curve and they extrapolated that to the supremacy regime um, to see that, okay, um, based on the error models that they developed, based on the simulation, they can, with a certain confidence, of course, say that probably the quantum computer is doing the right thing, even in the supremacy regime, even though we can, they cannot uh, verify it using their classical simulations. And in case um, the quantum computer did uh, wrong, still, um, they have also archived the results, so in maybe ten years, when we have better supercomputers, we might be able to just go back to them and then verify them against the 53-qubit 53 com- 53, 53 processor here, by which time, of course, they might already have like a larger quantum processor again. So the key results. Um, of this, I would say, are that for the first time, um, they show that really quantum computer can beat a classical computer um, even though it is at a very artificial and uh, probably not very useful problem. And what the experiment also shows is that, really I would say an astounding level of uh, uh, control of such a large-scale or medium-sized uh, quantum processor because even five years ago, um, or six years ago, 2012, 2013, uh, the systems that we worked with mostly consisted of three or four qubits, and uh, we could barely fabricate the chips and manipulate them um, to get like algorithms running. And now if I see like a 53 qubit processor with such a high degree of uh, control and fidelity there, Um, I can really say that it's really an amazing uh, progress in the last five years that was achieved, especially by the Google Martinez team here. And I also think it's a very good milestone on the way to fully work on quantum computer, because it nicely shows the limitations of the current system um, and gives a good direction on new areas of research, for example, in error correction, where we can uh, improve the um, different aspects of the quantum processor. The research has also been criticized uh, from various sides, so um, I just want to like iterate a few of the points here. Um, one of the criticisms of, is, of course, that it doesn't do anything useful, so there's really no applicability um, of this experiment. And while that's true, it's of course. Um, very difficult to go from like a basic, very simple quantum processor with two qubits to a system that can really uh, factorize prime numbers or do anything useful, so we will always need to find problems that are both hard enough so that we can solve them in a reasonable time frame, a couple of years for example, that still prove the progress that we make on the road to quantum computing. So in this sense, while quantum supremacy does not really um, show anything useful in terms of computation that is done, I think it's still a very good problem Um, as a benchmark for any kind of quantum processor because it um, requires that you have very good control over your system and that you can run um, such a number of gates um, at a very high fidelity, which is really currently, I would say, the, the state of the art. Um, the research they also took, uh, the authors also took some shortcuts. For example, they used like two qubit quantum gates, which are not, uh, as we call them, canonical gates, um, which might be problematic because if you want to run a quantum algorithm on the system, you need to implement certain quantum gates that you need for that. And uh, since they only have like non canonical gates here, which are still universal, by the way, um, they could not do that directly, but uh, with some modification of the system, it should also be possible. And the last criticism might be that, okay, um, here you have a problem that was engineered to match a solution, um, which is, of course, that, okay, uh, we need some solution, as I said, uh, some problem that we can. realistic yourself on a such a system. Um, I think, though, also like the other points, um, if you want to build a large-scale quantum processor, you need to define uh, reasonable milestones and having such a benchmark that other groups, for example, can also run that uh, process against is a very good thing because it makes the progress visible and also makes it easy to compare how different groups or how different companies or organizations are, um, are at uh, competing on uh, the number of qubits and the control they have about them. So, if you want to make a, a more kind of Moore's law for quantum um, computing, there would be several possibilities that you could um, um, do. Um, here, I show you, for example, the number of the qubits um, that have been realized for superconducting systems um, over the years. Um, this is of course incomplete because you could, like, the number of qubits alone doesn't tell you much about your system. Um, I mean, we could do a qubit chip with 1,000 or 10,000 qubits today, but if you don't have the connectivity and don't have the controllability of individual qubits, then this chip wouldn't be good. So um, there are other things that we also need to take into account here. Um, as I said, just as like the coupling between individual qubits and the coherence time and the fidelity of the qubit operations. So this is really just one, one uh, very small. Aspect of this whole um, whole problem space, but I think it shows nicely that in the last years there was really tremendous progress um, in terms of um, the power of these superconducting systems, because the original um, qubit, uh, which was developed. Uh, um, in, at the N- NEC in Japan uh, by Professor Nakamura um, was done in like around 2000. So it had very very bad uh, coherence time, very bad properties, um, but still it showed for the first time that you could coherently control such a system. And then it didn't take long for other groups, for example the Quatronics group in saclay to pick up on this work and to, uh, to do uh, to keep improving it. So after a few years we already had qubits with uh, a few hundred or even a microsecond of coherence time, which was like an, like three or audio of magnitude better than what we had before, and there were other advances then made by groups in the US, for example, in Yale, uh, the Schirkopf Lab, uh, which developed new qubit architectures um, that allowed us to couple the qubits more efficiently uh, with each other and to again have better control over manipulating them and then there's also groups like uh, the research group at IBM or companies like Rigetti that took again these ideas and that um, added engineering and their own research on top of that in order to make the systems even better so in 2018 we already had systems with um, 17 or 18 qubits in them and now uh, with this uh, Google and uh, UC Santa Barbara work we have the first systems with more than 50 qubit Uh, qubits after not even 20 years, which I think is quite some progress in this area. And of course, if you ask me how close we are to an actually working quantum computer, um, it's still very difficult to say, I find, because mm, we have proven, the group proved the um, quantum supremacy uh, for this randomised algorithm, but in order to do something uh, applicable or useful with such a quantum system, I think um, we need like at least uh, um, again fifty maybe to one hundred additional qubits and uh, a larger number of qubit operations but um, it 's really hard to say that 's why I also say don 't believe in this chart because. There is also, of course, a lot of work in uh, the theory of quantum algorithms, because up to now uh, we are still discovering new approaches of doing quantum simulations, for example, and right now there are a lot of research groups that are looking for ways to make these medium-scale quantum computers, so quantum computers with 50 or 100 qubits, already useful for uh, the use in quantum simulations, so it's really an interplay between what uh, the theory can give us in terms of quantum algorithms and what, in terms of experimental realization we can build as a quantum processor, so in my opinion, um, quantum simulation will definitely be something that uh, where we will see the first applications in the next I would say three to five years um, other things optimizations I have to admit i um, I'm less an expert in um, I think they're a bit more complex, so we will probably see the first applications in those areas a bit later and the big motivation for like the tree letter agencies always is, of course, the factoring or the breaking of crypto um, systems, which is the most challenging um, one, though, because in order to do that, you would both need very large numbers of qubits, so at least 8,000 qubits uh, for an 8,000-bit RSA key, for example, and you would also need a very large amount of qubit operations because you need to run this shore operation, and that uh, involves a lot of steps uh, for the uh, quantum processor. And this is so, uh, to say the most, I would say from my perspective, unrealistic application of superconducting quantum processes in the next year. Um, but I think if somebody would build a quantum computer, maybe we would also not just know about it. So who knows? <laughs> so to summarize, um, Quantum computers or quantum processes are getting really uh, seriously complex and very impressive, um, so we have seen tremendous progress in the last five years. Um I still think that we are like five years away from building really practical quantum computers, and there are still some challenges, for example, in error correction, um, in the quantum gate fidelity, and in the general architecture of these systems that we need to overcome, and there might also be some challenges which we haven't even identified yet, which we might only encounter at a later stage when trying to build really large-scale quantum processors. And as a last point, I just want to stress again that uh, quantum computing research is not only done uh, by Google or by IBM, um, there are a lot of groups in the world involved in this kind of research, both in theory and in experiment, and as I said before, a lot of the breakthroughs uh, that we use today for building quantum processes were done in very different places like Japan, Europe, uh, USA, so it's really, I would say, a global effort. And uh, um, you should also, when you look, uh, when you see this marketing uh, or PR um, that companies like Google and IBM do, maybe not believe all of the hype they're creating and um, keep uh, a down-to-earth view, so to say, of the limits and the potential of quantum computing. So. That's it, and I would be happy to take on your questions now. And if you have any feedback, um, there's also um, my Twitter handle there and my email address. And I think we also have some time for questions here right now. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Andreas. Um, We have almost 20 minutes for Q&A. If you're leaving now, please do so very quietly, and if you can avoid it, uh, just don't do it. Thank you. Um, Okay, Q&A, you know the game, there's eight microphones in this room, so just queue behind them and we will do our best um, to get everyone sorted out sequentially. We will start with a question from the internet. Thank you. Do you have information about the energy consumption of a quantum computer over the calculation power?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, for superconducting quantum computers, there are like several um, costs associated. Um, I think right now the biggest cost is probably of keeping the system um, cooled down. So, as I said, you need very low temperatures, uh, 20 or 10 millikelvin. Um, in order to achieve that, you need a so-called dilution cryostat and these systems they consume a lot of energy and also uh, materials like uh, helium mixtures, which are expensive and like uh, maybe not uh, well, kind of like a rare material right now. Um, I think that would be the biggest uh, consumption um, in terms of energy use. Uh, I honestly don't have so much of an idea. I mean, the manipulation of the qubit system is done via microwaves, and the power that goes into the system is very small compared to any of the power that you use for cooling the system. So I would say. Uh, for the foreseeable future, the power consumption should be dominated by like, the cooling and the setup cost uh, and the cost of the electronics as well. So, the classical electronics that, may, that controls the qubits, which can also be quite extensive for a large system. So, the qubit chip itself should be, very, should be really negligible in terms of energy consumption. Thank you. Microphone number one, please. Um, hello. Uh, I have a question in regards to quantum simulation. So, I would have thought that with 53 qubits, there would already be something interesting to do, since um, I think the border, the limit for more or less exact um, quantum chemistry calculations on classical computers is that there are 10 to 20 particles, so uh, is there a more complicated relation from um, particles to qubits that's missing here, or what's the problem? Yeah. Um, so in the paper, um, I couldn't find an uh, exact reason why they chose this problem. I think there are probably um, two aspects. Uh, one is that you don't have in the system um, the um, like arbitrary qubit control, so to say. So you cannot run like any um, Hamiltonian or quantum algorithm um, that you want. You are like limited in terms of connectivity. Yeah. So it's possible that they were not able to uh, run any uh, quantum algorithm. Uh, for simulation, which was not easy to run also on a classical system, you know. So, yeah. But I'm really not, not sure why they didn't. I think just if they would have, a, um, have had this chance to do a quantum simulation, they would probably have done that instead, because that's, yeah. of course, more impressive than uh, randomization or randomized algorithms. So, because they didn't do it, I think it was just probably too complicated or uh, not possible to realize on the system, yeah. Okay,
1: so it's this yeah,
2: but again, I don't know for sure here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you.: Yes, and also speaking as a sometimes quantum chemist, um, you
1: can't directly map qubits to uh, to atoms they're not two level systems, and you don't I mean you usually also simulate electrons and not just the atoms, but yeah. I'm not a speaker. So we can discuss yeah. later, okay. maybe microphone number two, please. Uh, Hi. Thanks. Um, can you compare this uh, classic or general uh, quantum computer to the one by D-Wave? That's one of the quantum computers by AWS offered. Mm-hmm. They have 2,000 qubits or something mm-hmm. they say.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, so the D-Wave system is a so-called adiabatic quantum computer, um, to my knowledge. So this, in this case, the um, the computation works a bit differently. It's uh, um, with the normal, with this quantum computer that Google produced, you have a gate sequence that you run on your input qubits, and then you get a result that you read out. With the D-Wave system, it's more that you like engineer like a Hamiltonian, which is also um, which also consists of local interactions between different qubits, and then you slowly change this Hamiltonian in order to like um, change the the ground state of the system to a solution of a problem that you're looking for. So. Um, so it's a different approach to quantum computation. Um, they also claimed um, that they can um, can achieve, or that they achieve a quantum supremacy. I think in a different way uh, for like an optimization problem. Um, but to my knowledge, um, the proof they have is less rigid, probably than uh, what the Google group produced here. So, but again, I'm not like an expert on adiabatic quantum computing, so I'm more like. A uh, (laughs) gate-based person, so yeah. I think, though, the proof that uh, here Google showed is more convincing in terms of, like, um, reproducibility and really, like, the uh, the proof that you're actually doing something that cannot be done on a classic computer. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. D-Wave will see that differently, I think, though. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's go to the back.
1: Number seven, please. Hello? Seven? You just waved to me? Uh, Hello. Uh, I was reading
2: that earlier this year IBM released the first commercial (laughs) uh, Q1 system or whatever the name is. And uh, you were mentioning before to keep our expectations down to earth. So my question is what kind of commercial expectations is IBM actually creating? Mm-hmm. So I spoke um, to some companies uh, here in Germany that are um, collaborating with um, IBM uh, or D-Wave or um, Google as well, and I asked what they're actually doing with the quantum computers. Um, they are um, uh, the, the companies offer, and um, I think the answer is that. Right now, a lot of, uh, commercially, a lot of companies um, are investigating this as something that could potentially be very useful or very re- relevant in uh, five to ten years. So they want to get some experience and they want to start collaborating. Um, I don't think, at least I don't know, any um, real production use of these systems uh, where the quantum computer would do some calculations that would not be doable on a classical system. Um, but again, I don't have a full overview of that. I think now it is mostly for experimentation and for getting to know these systems. Um, I think the companies, or most of the customers there, probably expect that in five years or ten years, the system will, systems will really be powerful enough to do some useful computations with them as well. Thanks. All right, the Internet, please.
1: With a quantum computer, you can calculate things in parallel, but there is this reversibility requirement. So, how much faster is a quantum computer at the end of the day?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true, so that um, if you want to uh, in if you want to realize classical algorithm, um, you have to do it in a reversible way. Um, but to my knowledge, you can, uh, from an efficiency perspective, implement any classical um, non-reversible algorithm um, as a reversible algorithm without um, loss in um, complexity. Um, so you can have also, like, for com- for reversible computation, you have universal gates, like the control not gate, um, that you can use uh, to express any logic function that you require. Um, you might need some additional qubits. Um, in com- Compared to the amount of the classical bits that you need uh, for the computation, but in principle there's nothing that keeps you from implementing any classical function on a quantum computer in terms of actual runtime, of course, um, it depends on how fast you can run individual operations. so right now, a single qubit operation, for example, on this uh, Google machine takes about I think uh, twenty to forty nanoseconds, um, so in that sense, the quantum computers are probably much slower than classical computers but the idea is anyway that you do only really the necessary computations uh, that you can't do on a classical machine, on a quantum computer, and anything else you can do on a normal classical system. So, the quantum processor in this sense is only like a um, like a, side, a coprocessor, like a GPU in that sense, I would say.
1: All right, microphone number four, please.
3: On the slide that shows Richard Feynman, you said that um, quantum computers were invented to simulate quantum systems. And can you please elaborate on that?
1: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, so uh, I don't have the link to the lecture here. Uh, unfortunately, the link is broken. But you can find that online. It's a 1982 lecture from uh, Feynman, where he discusses like, how um, you would actually go about simulating a quantum system. Because as we have shown, like. Uh, the, uh, if you want to simulate a full quantum system you need to uh, simulate the density matrix of the system and that um, takes about uh, that take, takes an exponential amount of uh, memory and computation um, in terms of like the number of qubits or quantum degrees of freedom that you want to simulate and Uh, With a classical or Turing machine, you couldn't do that in an efficient way because every time you add a single qubit, you basically quadruple your computational requirement. And that's really where the idea came from, I think, from Feynman to think about a computing system that would use quantum mechanics uh, in order to be able to do these kind of simulations because he saw probably that for large quantum systems, it would never be possible to run, at least with our uh, current understanding of classical computing, it would never be possible to run a quantum simulation of a quantum system on a classical computer in an efficient way. Does it answer the question? Okay. All right, microphone 8, please.
1: Um, I, um, as a uh, physicist who is now doing analog circuit design, I'm kind of wondering uh, why all the presentations about uh, quantum computers always use state zero and one and not multiple states. Is that a fundamental limitation or is that just just a simplification for the sake of the presentation?
2: Um, So you mean why you don't use like higher qubit states or like... Uh,
1: Multi-valued logic or even continuous uh, Uh, states.
2: So, in principle, the quantum bits that we are using, they, don't, they are not really two-level systems, so there is not only the level zero and one, but also level two, three, and so on. Um, you could use them, of course, but um, the computational power of the system is given as the number of states, so like m, for example, raised to the power of the number of qubits, so m to the power of n. So in that sense, if you add like another state, um, you only change like uh, um, con- like a smaller factor than adding another qubit. So it's usually not very interesting to add more states. What you would do instead is just add more qubits um, to your system. And for continuous variable uh, quantum mechanic, uh, quantum computation, um, I think there are some use cases where this might outperform like the digital quantum computers, um, especially if you can engineer your system to um, like mimic the Hamiltonian of the system that you want to simulate. Um, so I think in this sense, uh, in these cases, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, for other cases where you say, okay, you want to uh, run a general quantum computation, then like, such a digital quantum computer is probably the best solution. And you could also, um, just to add that, run um, like a continuous uh, simulation of a quantum system on such a gate-based quantum uh, system. It's just like the linear, li- the same order of complexity, I would say. Yeah. Does that answer the question?
1: Uh, I think I delude myself <laughs> to have understood that uh, the uh, non-diagonal elements in the density matrix grow much faster than the number of states in any, um, in ma- any diagonal matrix element. <laughs>
2: I guess you could say it like that, yeah. <laughs> I have to think about
1: it. <laughs> All right, number three, please. Um, what do you have to say about the um, skepticism of people like Gil Kalai that claim that uh, um, inherent uh, noise it will be a fundamental problem in scaling these uh, quantum computers?
2: Um, I mean, it's a valid uh, concern, I think. Uh, as of today, we do not have even, uh, for a single qubit, shown error correction. Um, there are some first experiments, for example, by the Schulkopf lab in Yale, where they showed some of the elements of error correction for a single qubit system. Um, but we have not even managed today to like keep a single qubit alive indefinitely. So. Um, that's why I, I would say it's an open question, it's a valid criticism. Um, I think the next five years will show if we are actually able to run these quantum errors and if our error models uh, themselves are correct, because they're only correct for certain errors, um, or if there's anything else that keeps us from like, building a large-scale system. Yeah, so I think it's a totally valid point, yeah. Microphone five, please.
3: Um, there has been a study uh, on factorizing on adiabatic machines, which uh, requires log uh, squared n qubits, while sure requires n uh, log n. Uh-huh. But uh, as the adiabatic uh, systems uh, have much higher qubit numbers, uh, they were able to factorize uh, on these machines much larger numbers than on the normal devices, uh, and that's something that never shows up in the discussion. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, have you read the study? Uh, what do you think? Uh, are adiabatic machines bogus, or um, is it a uh, worthwhile result?
2: Um, I'm not, yeah, as I said, like an expert on adiabatic quantum computing. Um, I know that. There were some like studies or investigations of the D-Wave system. Um, like I haven't read this uh, particular study about factorization. Um, I think adiabatic quantum computing is a valid approach as well to quantum computing. Um, I just I'm not just just not sure um, if uh, currently like it, the results were like shown with the same. Um, Amount of like rigidity or like um, rigid proofs like for the gate-based quantum computer, but yeah, I'm, I really would have to look at the study to to see that. Yeah.
1: Can you maybe quickly say the authors so it's on the record? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, if your mic is still on, number five. Uh,
3: <laughs> sorry, I don't. Uh, okay,
1: no problem. Thank. Yeah. yeah.
2: Sorry. But yeah, I don't think quant- adiabatic quantum computing is like. Um, and I think adiabatic quantum computing is a valid uh, choice or valid uh, approach for doing quantum computation as well. Yeah. So
3: uh, I can give you. I can search for the authors later and give it uh, to you. Okay.
1: Okay, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, microphone four, please.
3: What do you say about IBM's claim that Google's supremacy claim is invalid because the problem was not really hard?
2: Yeah. Um, so. Basically, IBM, I think, said, "Okay, if you do some optimizations on the way you simulate the systems, then you can reduce this computation time from 10,000 years to like maybe a few hours or so." Um, I think it's of course a valid; um, cl- it might be a valid claim. Um, I don't know if it really invalidates the result because, um, as I said, like the uh, computational uh, power of like the classical systems, they will also it will also increase in the coming years. Um, Right now, okay you could say then maybe if we haven't achieved quantum supremacy in regards to like the 2019 hardware, then maybe we should just like look at the 2015 hardware and then we can say, okay, uh, there probably we achieved that um, in any case, I think the most um, what's most impressive about this result for me is not like if we are really in the supremacy regime or maybe not it's really the amount of um, the, the degree of controllability of the qubit system that this group has achieved. I think that's really the important point here, regardless of whether um, they actually achieved the supremacy or not. Because it shows that um, these kind of systems uh, seem to be a good architecture choice for building larger scale quantum processors. And this alone is very valuable, I think, as a, uh, to guide the future research direction, regardless of whether this is actually of, um, no, they achieve this or not, yeah. But yeah, I can understand, of course, the, the criticism, yeah.
3: Okay, uh, one thing, uh, the the article is called Qu- uh, Quantum annealing for prime factorization, uh-huh. appeared in Nature in December 18. Yeah. Authors are uh, uh, Jiang, Britt, McCaskey, Humble, and Case.
1: Okay, great. Wonderful. Yeah, Thank we'll you. have a look at that again. Mm, thanks. All right, uh, Microphone 6, do you have a short question? Um, yeah, hopefully. Um it is known that it is not very easy to understand how um, large quantum superposition um, goes into microscopic state, so into microscopic physical description. So, apparently there are a couple of things not understood. So, is there anything you know about when you go 2,000, 10,000 million qubits, could you expect um, the quantum behavior to break down? Are there any Fundamental argument that this will not happen, or is this not a problem considered um, recently? Uh-huh. Okay.
2: Um, I'm not sure if I fully understand the question. It's mostly about, like, if you say like quantum mechanics has some like scale uh, variance, so that if you go to a certain scale, then sometime at some point you have like uh, irreversibility or like uh, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think there are large quantum systems that occur naturally. Um, I don't know. Uh, like a Bose-Einstein condensate, for example, has a lot of degrees of freedoms that are not controlled, of course, but um, that are also quantum mechanical. Um, and there it seems to work, so personally I, I would think um, that there is no such limit, but I mean who knows? It's like, that's why we do like, experimental physics, yeah? so we will see as, if we reach that. Yeah. But from like, the theory of quantum mechanics, right now there is no indication that there should be such a, um, a limit, yeah, to my knowledge.
1: All right, so maybe we will see you again in five years. So please thank Andreas once again. Thanks.
0: So yeah, uh, it's definitely uh, something for you to catch up on if that's where you are in the state of things, right? So, uh, you know, it's always been something of interest uh, that you should be paying attention to if uh, you, <laughs> if that's your thing. I don't know, you know, uh, it's it's something to definitely keep in the in in your front pocket nowadays, uh, not in your back pockets. Uh, just because, right? But um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there, are, there is going to be a pivotal moment in time in the not so distant future where you will need to be versed in both disciplines, binary computing and quantum computing. And so I think it's it's relevant if you wish to stay relevant, to understand the beginnings of what will be a fundamental commercial, normal everyday thing uh in the next uh, i don't know with that said uh th- thanks again for checking out the show um thank you again to everybody who um checks out the show for the feedback everybody i love you very much um th- you know it's uh it's get- getting back to normal is a good thing and that's definitely something that hasn't uh flown past by me Uh, I've been uh, doing a lot of doing, you know, just doing, uh, doing all the studying, right. And, you know, keeping things on track, fighting with the email people and nevertheless uh, coming in and doing this thing. Uh, and it's, it's been, it's been, it's (laughs) it's definitely been a weekend. Uh, with that said, be sure to check out the website at hackers.xxx. You can check me out on Twitter. If you could ever find me on Twitter, I'm usually there sometimes, not a lot. Uh, and also, you can reach out, uh, check out the, um, oh, you could check out the other shows <laughs> and the other podcasts on the uh, show page as well. Um, and you can also check out the annual letter that Madara finally uh, sent in to us. Uh, he or she was very, um, ooh, uh, you know, I I I, uh, I, I read through um, the letter and... Um, You know, it's, uh, very interesting. And so you could check out the the annual letter by Madara and also you could check out his or hers, uh, previous letters at the uh, 2014 letter and the 2015 letter as well. Um, and also, uh, I had a, a few people asking me as well, uh, over the, over the past several weeks, um. You know, what's the deal with the Temple OS and all of that? And uh, I don't know, man. Uh, wh- what is the deal with the Temple OS? Uh, if you haven't tried it, you should. It's nothing.
4: <laughs>
0: you know, it's, uh, it's nothing to um, be taken lightly, and then it's nothing to be taken too seriously either. So um, you can check out Temple Operating System by checking it, going to the website and downloading it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's quite, quite the operating system as well. Uh, Other than that, uh, if you have anything to say or bitch about, you know how to get in touch with me. You sure do. Uh, And uh, what else is going on? Oh, and we are going to get the events uh, page done Is I don't know. When will the... Dude. When's the event page going to be done? Do we have any idea? So, well, we'll have the events... uh, you know, information, as soon as we get the information, we will uh, move it along to you as well. So, uh, and, and for the meanwhile, you can check out the past events, uh, by going to the uh, events page as well. Uh, other than that, uh, I just wanted to, uh, swing by and share a little bit of uh, quantum computing thought with you and, uh, just kind of get it, uh, pull it together. Right. And so hopefully that's what you're doing as well. Uh, everything else, uh, you know, it, it, Everything else matters, but it doesn't. And with that said, I'm going to split out of here. Take care of yourself. I will be back next weekend. I will. I promise. I swear I I will be back next weekend. Uh, And until next weekend, take care of yourself, okay? Talk to you later. Bye.